The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by FreshBooks. Discover a super intuitive way to make creating and sending invoices for your business efficient and simple. Try it out for free for an entire month. Visit freshbooks.com candid and enter the candid frame in the how did you hear about section. FreshBooks, it's small business accounting software made just for you. This is X, and this is the candid frame. Though the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have faded from the headlines, it's a story that continues for the thousands of veterans who have returned home. Some contend with the physical damage of warfare, but there are tens of thousands of others who suffer despite the fact that their bodies don't exhibit signs of trauma. It's the lingering price paid, not only by the soldiers themselves, but by their families and friends, as they contend not only with PTSD, but also brain trauma due to the concussive force of explosions. It is these stories of veterans that National Geographic photographer Lynn Johnson has been focusing on. As a socially conscious photographer, Lynn has often turned her camera to subject matter that may be difficult. But she does it with a compassionate and insightful eye that makes her an exceptional photographer and storyteller. Well, Lynn, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a real pleasure to have you on the, on the show. Pleasure to be speaking with you. I've been really impressed by your, your, your body of work. It really is quite, quite amazing. You are a photographer who's known for being very socially conscious in terms of the work and the subject matter that you often visit. And I was wondering, was that sort of born during your time in college, or is that something that you sort of developed even before you got into school? Uh, I would say that it started very early, um, uh, that my first photographic influence was probably Dorothea Lang and the Farm Security Administration photographers. And so the visual power of those images came bundled with a social awareness. And then my parents were, are are marvelous and um, were open to just allowing me to sort of find my way and support that. And I grew up in a house that is you know, not, I wouldn't say an activist house, but um, a welcoming home. And so, you know, everyone was welcome. And and we just had, I don't know, I just had a sense of never being the other. And, um, and just think working from that place of inclusion, and it just sort of happened naturally, I guess. Do you remember a particular story that you that you saw, photo story maybe in a magazine or in a, in a book that really served as a, a big inspiration for you with respect to this? Uh, you know, I I sort of grew up 
in the 50s, 60s. And <clears throat> so probably all the work from Vietnam, the work in Life magazine was still a very powerful force in terms of populist media. So Gene Smith and all of the the Life magazine uh, photographers. I, I really think that it's not so much uh, the social awareness just seemed like an obvious uh, path. I would say the greater struggle was more one attached to gender and uh, not having very many women role models in this profession. And in fact, there really still aren't enough. But um, I think that's changing. So flesh that out a little bit for me. I mean, um, so you're, you know, you're young, you're um, finding an interest in this photography. Was the dearth of, of not seeing, you know, women as photographers uh, sort of, I am trying to, I'm trying to understand exactly what you're, what you're right. Then. <clears throat> so, so I think that, um, you know, it was a very male oriented uh, profession. But I, I do believe that and it still is, but I do believe that when you want to be a photographer, when you feel compelled to live this life with all the challenges that it entails or challenges that are woven into this life, then basically nothing will stop you. It doesn't matter if you're never at home or you lose all your relationships or you you know don't have enough money, that there is just something inside that compels you to go back back out again into a strange place or an unknown place or a place where you're a stranger and and make photographs. And so that was just sort of inside of me. And I don't know where it came from, quite frankly, but it was a driving force. And so coming into the profession at that time, yeah, there just weren't, you know, you sort of had Diane Arbus as an icon and Dorothea Lang and um, and it just felt like you had to chart your own singular path in the profession as a female. Well, your master's thesis was on the subject of hate crimes. Um, tell, tell me about the, the idea behind that. And, and what led you to, you know, want to tell that, that story at, at that particular time? Well, I had already been a professional for many years and had the experience of two stories I was working on at the time, sort of within a space of a year, just go down the tubes. You know, they didn't end up on the page for various reasons. And the first one was a story about pain for National Geographic, and it got right to the publication date and and then I got a call from uh, the editor at the time a really wonderful man uh, but he said you know it's just too difficult to look at we cannot publish this work it's too tough and I sort of thought well that I thought that's what we were supposed to be doing you know mm. is put reality before people but in the end, we don't control access to the page as photographers. We only can gather the work and present it. So um, that was just a reality of the time. But it was really disheartening. And then I did a story about the dragging death of James Bird in Texas for Life magazine. And, uh, of course, an uh, incredibly powerful story of this man's life taken in the most violent way. 
it was also ready to go to press. And the uh, shooting happened in uh, Colorado, where these uh, kids were. It was one of the first shootings in schools. And, of course, the kids were white uh, who were killed. Enormous tragedy. But the story of Mr. Bird was pulled in favor of this other um, sort of cobbled together sort of news-ish piece. And I thought, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe that this man's life and, and the significance of this event and how it reveals our, the racial crisis in this country and that underbelly, how, how, you know, again, it's on the cutting room floor and we're not going to look at this. You know, the readers will not look at this and sort of into their own hearts and see where their prejudice lives. And because we are all prejudiced in some way about some other group of people. And so I thought, okay, I uh, like I'm done with this profession. I can't do this anymore. It's just too demoralizing um, not to have the work on the page and and to and to be able to complete the mission of the work. Uh, and then I went to Ohio University. I was offered a Knight Fellowship to do my master's there. And when we, when I was sort of speaking with colleagues about what path to take for the master's, you know, for the thesis, um, there was at that time a shooting in a gay bar in Roanoke, Virginia. And all of a sudden, all of this sort of, you know, this idea of hate crimes and how being the other can be a dangerous position, it made sense. It made sense to make it the project and to make it the focus and to try to understand how we relate to each other as human beings and use photography as the language of that. It's it's a real sort of a, a challenging subject to express sort of photographically, because other, you know, other than the sort of the, the visceral reaction that you have to you know the death of Mr. Bird, a lot of the underlying issues are about thoughts about ideas, um, mm-hmm. about words. As, as a photographer, how did you take on the challenge of being able to create images that touched on that subject and revealed in a way that, that really was served photographically? Mm. Yes, and, and it's about fear, and it's about stereotyping, and it's about, right, all so many kind of amorphous, emotional landscape. So uh, that's that's the great challenge is to make the you know those vapors real and and find the human face of that. So I did a couple of things. I, I did the sort of very traditional documentary photography approach where I spent a lot of time with the people who had survived the shooting in the gay bar. And then I use the material that I had shot for Life magazine. We were behind the scenes in the courtroom quite a bit, and uh, I just used that body of work. But then I also created this, you know, knowing that I needed to grow and to change, and, and, and we all, as visual communicators, we need to grow all the time. Um, I thought, okay, well, I, I need to just not just think about the page, but to think about physical space and so created this outdoor exhibit space using very very large like 12 foot by 12 foot 
or maybe even more, I mean, this was a number of years ago, panels. Where, and on each panel was a photograph of a place that a hate crime had occurred. And there were maybe nine of them. And so it was a space for intentional conversation. And it would invite people into that space to talk about prejudice and fear and violence. It was really, it traveled for a while. It was supported by a grant from Soros, one of the Open Society grants. You know, that I think making it physical, making it a physical space actually helped use the imagery in a different way. And um, hmm, don't know if I answered your question. No, it does. And it just brings up the interesting idea that, you know, as, as, a, as a photographer, you're working as a, you know, as a photojournalist for a singular, uh, for a paper. And that usually involves sort of most times a singular image. And if you're working for a magazine, you may have the opportunity to have, you know, two or three or maybe more photographs to sort of illustrate a story. But in this last example, you, you know, you have, the opportunity to to have a lot more control in terms of how the images are seen and experienced, and you know, and all of them you're trying to sort of uh, evoke uh, a reaction in someone to, to to think, if not to feel feel something. Mm-hmm. And yes. as and as a photographer, when when you're making the photographs. Uh, that really is not something that you can focus on when you're you're shooting. It's something that only happens sort of after the fact. But nevertheless, when you're taking on a story and you're trying to flesh it out in the midst of being, you know, behind the camera, uh, how how are, how are you thinking there? Making sure that you're sort of filling in all the holes that that the, the entire narrative that you're trying to express is being captured. What tools do you use to to help ensure that you get everything that you need? Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's not like filling a bucket until it's at the top. It's it's a process of discovery, especially working for, for National Geographic. The approach is uh, immersive, and I do a great deal of research. I'm constantly reading, talking to experts. It doesn't matter what the topic is. And I tend to get assignments that are that do have this nature, that they're not, uh, they're more uh, about issues or about theories or about people who have long since died or, you know, things that you can't see. Mm -hmm. And so I I think the only way to pursue stories like that is, is really to just have a body of knowledge within you. So I do a great deal of reading um, and I read constantly during the time of the assignment, you know, fiction, nonfiction, scientific research, and and then go into the field to photograph based on that knowledge and look for people who can be the personification of the issues, the, both the problems and the solutions. Can you give me an example of one of the stories that you did for National Geographic in which you applied that those principles? Yes, actually, this is something I'm kind of thinking about trying to do more of. So I did a story a number of years ago about traumatic brain injury. It's called blast force injury. And veterans returning, veterans or like anyone who is exposed to a blast actually has a very special kind of brain injury that is not apparent if the person gets a traditional scan. 
And so most of these men and women, we'll just speak in terms of military folks for now, <clears throat> they come back from the theater war and they are feel like they're completely crazy. And they have no attention span, they can't eat, they can't sleep, their relationships are in the tank. And yet, they're whole physically. They have all their limbs, their eyes, their, you know, every, the body is working, but the mind is not working. Uh, I got the assignment <clears throat> from Geographic and worked with a really wonderful editor, Kurt Mutchler. The introduction to the assignment was to be shown a page of very tiny images of masks. And so uh, the masks were actually done by the veterans. The masks represented the pain and trauma, confusion, anger that was within them. Each mask was different. Each mask was powerful. There were skulls and scars and American flags torn to shreds and little bits of bombs on these masks. And so the challenge was, how do you take what's represented there, um, knowing that that's inside of a person? Mm -hmm. You know, that's their landscape. That's their emotional landscape. That's the scar. That's the, that's the reason they can't move forward. And it's physiological. It's not just uh, a psychological thing. It's because there's something wrong in the brain, and that's just not understood very well. And so they're treated so poorly in the military and in the medical system. So I thought, okay, I think I'm going to ask these folks to put the mask on. And I thought, in the beginning, nobody's going to want to do that. And you know, that's like, hmm, might not be a good idea. Anyway, I thought I'd try. Anyway, so I just like bundle up a couple of these masks, make an appointment with some of the guys, even though I also photographed one woman. It was sadly... Not enough women have been through the program to help them. And the first person I asked was just completely fascinated and said, yeah, give me that mask. And he put it on. And we just started to make portraits. And I just visited about six or seven or eight folks. And we did a portrait in each case. And, um, and I recorded their thoughts about the mask and how they were doing. And it just turned into a very powerful uh, experience on all counts. So I hope that the reader, they're very uncomfortable, these pictures, because you're humanizing and yet dehumanizing the person in the image. And it was a collaboration. So it's not like I'm doing it to anyone. You know, we did it together. But I feel that this, this issue of uh, brain trauma, not just in veterans, but in civilians as well, uh, continues to be an enormous challenge. You know, the, the, the portraits are really impactful. And I think especially the ones uh, where, the, where the soldier is photographed with family members. Because mm -hmm. the mask and how the other family members are sort of act, interacting with the subject within the frame just evoke mm -hmm. a sense of sort of distance or or just tension that I think is yes. really reflective of the subject matter. Was that was that something that was obvious to you as you were shooting it, or did that come? Did you come to that realization as you began to photograph more of these people? Uh, that that disconnect, that emotional disconnect, is part of the brain injury. So that's part of the brain injury, and I just we would just agree on 
you know, first of all, these masks weren't meant to be worn. And so we had to figure out how to rig them so that the person could keep it on for any given period of time. And sometimes the guys couldn't, you know, they would like put it on and they would say, okay, I'm freaking out. I have to take it off. Then they'd put it back on and we would shoot some more. But uh, the, um, we sort of found a space that was important to them and to have family members there. For instance, in one case, it was in a bedroom and that's the room where this gentleman woke up and was strangling his wife in a dream. He was having a nightmare. <clears throat> so that was the moment and that was the place where he realized he needed to get help. So every place was chosen very for a specific reason. Mm. And then I just asked them to be in the space and it was kind of up to them to reveal whatever they chose to reveal. And you recorded, as you mentioned, their 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 thoughts about what they were going through. And those and that makes the entire experience, I think, even more palpable to hear it in these people's voices. Because sometimes you can even hear it in, in their voices there mm-hmm. describing their, their experience. Um, how important was that in terms of what you were trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a great question because I, I think as photographers we're trained, especially in my generation, we're trained to just think of the image as the only meaningful point of communication. But in fact, sitting and talking and listening is actually, actually not talking, but sitting and listening specifically is the true uh, portal into understanding, of course, and therefore into um, being able to receive a photograph that has significance and power. It was, it was very important, and it, it was also important to decide like when to talk. Should it be at the beginning? Was it beginning, middle, and end? Was it just at the end? Was it, you know, and, and that's another thing I found had to be guided by the person on the other side of the camera because these guys did not trust easily. They were all experiencing PTSD and, and significant levels of trauma of many kinds. So they needed to control the situation in many cases. And um, yes, but the recordings were, were key. And I think also, you know, when you, you go back to the magazine and you offer up the material and hope that people feel the power that you felt in the field, that's not always the case. It's not always the case that it transfers. And I think the recordings just had a way of speaking to the writing side mm-hmm. and to really and to the designers and to the web people and to, you know, it actually created this common ground, which was a great uh, benefit in, you know, getting the material on the page and on the web to hopefully help people. In today's world, one in three Americans is self-employed, and that's a trend that's only growing. Working for yourself can provide some of the most satisfying and fulfilling moments of a professional and creative life, but it's not without its challenges. That's especially the case when it comes to handling and managing your finances. Though some may have earned a degree in business, the rest of us have managed to learn through time and experience, and of course, our share of mistakes. But thank goodness for services like FreshBooks that make the learning curve a lot less steeper. 
The latest version of FreshBooks has been redesigned from the ground up, making it easier to handle every aspect of your business life from drafting estimates, submitting invoices, and keeping track of your income and expenditures. It not only makes handling your finances easier, but it provides you what you need to be successful. Discover how FreshBooks can help you to handle cash flow, expense management, time tracking, and so much more by taking advantage of their month-long free trial. No credit card is required. Visit freshbooks.com forward slash candid and enter the candid frame in the how did you hear about section. FreshBooks, it's small business accounting software made just for you. You know, getting people to post for you and, and even more so getting people to talk about something very personable, personal, very uh, traumatic can be a very sort of difficult thing. And you've, and you've pointed out several times that it's oftentimes about, you know, listening to people. Mm-hmm. But how, how did you sort of develop that skill? Because it's, it's a skill set just as much as anything that you do uh, as with the camera. And, you know, it's not, it's not like you can use the same technique over and over again. So when you're, when you're talking to someone that you haven't had the opportunity to photograph yet or interview yet, um, what, how, how do you sort of gauge a person in terms of, you know, how much you can push when you, when you, when you need to back off? What, can you tell me a little bit about what that thought, thought process is for you? And if you could give me an example of that, that'd be, that would be wonderful. Mm-hmm. I suppose if you're a interviewer for, you know, NPR, or if you're that kind of interviewer at a high level for many years, you do develop techniques. Uh, I, I guess if I had to define it, it's really just something driven by curiosity and wanting to find a common, it's not even a common ground, it's a, you know, just like an opening, and I think that's my role is to create this opening and to cr- and to have this sense of trust that yeah it just opens the landscape. And so I don't you know I don't have a technique. I'm just completely if I don't know where to go, if I don't know what to say, if I don't know what to ask, I just say I don't know what to ask. You know, mm. <laughs> I mean I'd like I think the most important thing is to be completely genuine. And so, uh, so it's not a manipulation. I mean, really, this is a profession of manipulation. We are trying to get people to open their hearts. And I think if you are, if your intention is wrong, and if your intention is to manipulate, then uh, well, that's not how I want to be treated. And that's not how I want to live. And if other people want to do it that way, that's fine. But I would just rather sit and wait and share and. And, and try to create this opening. I think there was a, a place when Aaron, who was, we'll just stay with Blast Force folks, who I'm still in touch with. I mean, I just got a text from Jeff today. He sends me these amazing pictures of furniture that he's making now that he's out of the military and he's retired and he feels healthier. And, you know, so I still like hear from these guys. I'm watching Aaron's kids grow up on Instagram. And and that's a wonderful thing because I feel like, oh my God, I wonder if this project had any role in helping them see themselves a different way or move into healing or, I mean, is there any just fragment of that time or that process that 
allowed them to say, oh my God, I can step out of this trauma, even for a nanosecond, to look back and say, okay, I need to get help, or I'm so grateful I got help, or am I really listening to the doctors and taking that healthy path, or... And that has nothing to do with the photograph. I mean, the, f- the camera got you there, but when you start to talk, then a person has to be internal in the conversation as well, and they start being self-reflective. And that is where the learning happens for everyone. You, know, you described the, the, the practice of this, this, this process of meeting these people and making pictures and being immersed in other people's lives is addictive for you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What is it specifically about the entire experience that makes it so? You know, I was uh, last night, actually, here in Pittsburgh. Uh, I, I'm a part of a group of women photographers um, who work for National Geographic. Uh, and, and there's a, uh, an exhibit that's been traveling for three years now, and it's called Women of Vision. We were all on stage at this Carnegie Institute, which is this, you know, fabulous natural history museum in, in my hometown of Pittsburgh. And we were kind of like presenting to the public. And as I looked at everyone else, I really, you know, we are all addicted. We are all addicted to that heightened human experience of emotional vibration that happens when you photograph and when you seek the depth of of, of a moment or a landscape. I mean, we are all different kinds of photographers. Some of those women search for beauty. Some are activists. Some are, um, you know, do landscape work. But we're all compelled to go out again and again. And I just think it's, yeah, I don't think people call it an addiction, but it is. It's like there is a physical reaction to being in the presence of powerful human emotion and powerful natural settings that just brings you back again and again. You know, you, you talked earlier in the beginning of your career about the, that, that there wasn't much diversity with respect to, to women in photojournalism. And that's changed a lot in, in with respect, not only to the women behind the camera, but also those that are serving as photo editors mm-hmm. uh, for, for publications. And I'm wondering, over the span of your career, have you what what changes have you seen in terms of the kind of stories that you can tell or want to tell as a result of the change in that demographic have have you seen any sort of difference over the span of your career career with respect to that i actually don't think it has to do with so much with women being in the editor position well i think women working in the field are more apt to cover issues of, you know, like women are going to, to battle, you know, women are dealing with uh, all the, you know, issues of social violence. And, um, you know, I've been working on this project about rape in the military for years. So I think there's that, you know, there's no fear of working on those topics. Uh, I think the problem is that it's it's hard to get, it's still difficult to get them published in any meaningful way. So, and I don't think that women in the ranks of uh, editors has 
push that forward in any sort of enormous, you know, institutional way because it's still there's still this deep sensitivity to like you can't you can't do that to the public you know Mm -hmm. or they won't you know you'll lose the subscriptions or that you know and and times have been tight for a while you know magazine readership is down and you know the cost of shipping magazines out is higher and higher and you know so there's a great sensitivity to that what i do think is that younger women are, don't let anything stop them. And so there is a willingness to like go do the work, do it on your own dime, and put it on the internet. And so the internet has changed access to stories like that and changed levels of motivation. And so I think that's an important factor. And of course, if you're looking for a photo editor to help you craft a project, it is great that there are uh, women who have that female sensibility or that gendered sensitivity. But I'm I'm not so sure that their presence actually makes makes it easier to publish today. How much of the work that you're doing now is a result of what you are directly pitching to an editor or just starting on your own as opposed mm-hmm. to it being an assignment? Uh, I, I work almost entirely on assignment, so I am graced with these amazing assignments that I just get called for, particularly for geographic. And they are, you know, it's like finally, after all these years, I've been shooting for 40 years, that um, I would say in the last seven to 10 years, uh, the assignments that I've been offered are things that are, you know, challenging and interesting and meaningful. And so, I mean, I have personal projects that I work on as well. And I think sometimes the personal projects flow out of the assignment work that, you know, I just meet so many amazing people that, you know, are captivating. And I realize that you can never put the depth of that work on the magazine page. And so I want to just continue and be in relationship with those people and continue to produce work and, you know, hopefully put it out there so that it's meaningful, you know, in a, a different kind of time span. You did a, a story on, on, on death for National Geographic, and but a story that was related to that was photographs you created um, during the final days of a woman named Phyllis uh, Andrews. Mm-hmm. And from my understanding, it, it, she was the mother of a family friend. Um, can you tell me the, the story behind those images and how it tied into the, the photo work that you were doing for NetGeo? Mm-hmm. So I had a story about dying for, I was working with a picture editor, Elizabeth Christ, who is a wonderful woman at Geographic. Uh, we were charged with doing this story, actually that grew out of one of her ideas because she is, is volunteers as a hospice worker. She in Washington, which is her home. And uh, it was really going to be a story about the sort of, you know, what happens at the end? What is that spiritual side of thing? You know, how do you get the death that you want? What is a good death? And then uh, the story became a science story, and it took a completely different turn where, you know, then instead of this like process of discovery and this kind of sense of the mystical that we were going to deal with. Now it's a hardcore science story and I had to do portraits of people who had officially died and come back 
to life and what did that mean in their physiology. And I really missed that uh, deep human portion. And I had a good friend, Nancy Andrews, who is also a photographer and has been in the field of newspapers for a long time. Her mom was at the end of her life. We talked about the possibility of documenting her final months. And Nancy said, you know, my mom hates being photographed and she's never going to say yes, but I'll ask her. And she did. And Phyllis said, sure, we need to do this. So I started visiting the family home. I was told that the assignment should be shot with a two and a quarter. So I was using a Hasselblad and film, which of course is very loud. And I just made the determination that it was too intrusive in, in the room at such a delicate time. Uh, even though when I started the project, Phyllis was very conscious and alert, and we recorded some conversations and her talking and going back in her memory and singing the hymns that she loved. And But increasingly, it, it was just uh, not the right camera to use. And it seems like a nuts and bolts kind of thing, but it was not. It was a, a, a question of, like, what is ethical when you're in the space? Is it right to just because you have the gift of being there or permission to be there, you know, it, it doesn't mean you have permission to be aggressive in your gathering. So I decided to use the iPhone and just recorded everything with that little phone uh, with a particular app, which I thought felt appropriate, and recorded uh, all kinds of audio of her final um, days. And then... Uh, a uh, young woman uh, at Geographic, uh, Catherine, put the piece together, weaving the images and the, the words and the audio, and she did a beautiful job. So the only people in the room at the very end when Phyllis uh, took her last breath was uh, Nancy and uh, her partner, Annie, who was my best buddy, and myself and Phyllis, and we were all at her bedside. And it was a beautiful, powerful moment and a great gift to share that. You know, you've had the opportunity to photograph other people who are, are dying. And you talked about, you know, trying to have a certain sort of uh, sensitivity to the people mm -hmm. and their family. This was very close to home for you. Um, how was this experience different from the other times where you have photograph people under similar circumstances, and how has it changed your approach since then? You know, I think it was different because, you know, we are trained to believe in objectivity in this profession and in general in the journalistic profession, which I think is just absolutely not possible. I think you should be fair and um, balanced, but objectivity is just, you know, some kind of mm, ruse. So, uh, but I think what this project did is give me the permission to participate and gather from the position of a participant. I mean, I also on occasion would help take care of Phyllis, help lift her, help make sure she was safe, you know, bring things, carry things, massage her, you know, this sort of thing. So, and take care of my friends who I love and 
wanted to support and just that presence there uh, to record, Nancy said, gave her freedom to be fully present for her mom. She didn't feel like she had to record anything visually or otherwise. So, you know, I sort of feel like it was a service and that I could kind of cross over that uh, encapsulated role as journalist or photographer or documentarian. And we just got rid of all those lines and um, made it, I think it made it a much more powerful and real and um, enduring experience. So how has it made it different in thinking about this issue? I think every assignment and every relationship makes everything different every time you go out the door. Uh, and this is just one of those. I, I, everything is powerful. I mean, every assignment is immersive. But what I have now is is a, a body of information about dying and people who I know who can help when it's necessary or if it's ever necessary. So my parents are 91, and on my last visit with them, we spoke of, of their passing and how they, you know, and I knew the questions to ask, like, how do you want to die? How do you think of your death? What, like, what is, like, what is the line for you? If you can't do this, is that enough? Are you done? If you can't do this, you know, that, that they should have the power to decide when they're done. And I think this project created a courage to ask that question and to know the right question to ask and not to be afraid to approach that because they certainly aren't afraid. They are the brave ones, and it's up to me to live up to that great gift of life and love that they've given me over the years. So I now will be present for them in that time, whenever they choose. You know, you've been privileged enough to have access, not just to people's lives, but to have opportunities to discuss things like death and fear and just... You know, to have the kinds of intimate conversations that are often lank, lacking with in most of our relationships, with even the people that are closest to us, mm-hmm. how has that sort of shaped who you are as a person? Not not as a photographer, but just as a human being. How has that made you a better person? First of all, I love that you use the word privilege because that is the truth. It is always a privilege and even though it's difficult sometimes um, and I think many photographers forget that that we feel that we have a right to be there but in fact it's it's always a privilege and we need to remember that and that should be reflected not just in our work but in the way we enter the room and are present physically and emotionally and <clears throat> energetically I, I mean I think having this great privilege and access to people's lives and to their most difficult moments uh, has made me, um, I don't know, I'm just grateful. You know, I'm just grateful all the time. And, um, but it's, but it's also, you know, it also takes its toll. It, it's even though I'm not doing conflict photography and I don't see that kind of wholesale violence that say, you know, like one of the women on the stage last night was Maggie Steber, mm-hmm. who's worked in Haiti so much. And, you know, just like as she kept saying, 
I was almost beheaded, you know, I was almost killed. I was, you know, I mean, that kind of thing. Or Ann Curry, who was the moderator, who was like seeing tons of violence, you know. But you can have uh, that trauma stuck in your in your body and mind from those experiences as well as being present at somebody's passing or being, you know, witnessing a, a more personal kind of violence or taking in many, many stories of trauma. So, yeah, I think that can have the impact of actually hardening you and making you less sensitive. So you have to uh, have to work against that and, you know, reset all the time and just remind myself how you need to enter the room, how the level of sensitivity that's required. But I think the people that take the hit are, are the people in your personal life. And that that's where, especially if you're away a lot and you come home with other people's stories, that can supplant your own. And it's your, you know, like husband or lover, or, you know, partner or kids that actually can suffer that disconnect that you have just to survive, you know, that incoming all the time. So how do you, how do you, how have you sort of com- combated with that? Because I've talked to photographers who, whose families just did not hold up as a result of just what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we all have that whole list of people that gave up and they were like, get me out of here. You know, I can't deal with you. I had one person say, you know, just think of me as an assignment and then maybe I'll see you more often. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm still learning, man. I don't, you know, I'm open to suggestion. <laughs> I, I actually, I actually finally think I have uh, a deeper understanding of what it takes to be present in my own life. But I'll let you know, I need about six more months to be sure. <laughs> Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? You know, I am so, I feel such a kinship with these women that I have been hanging with for the last couple of days These this for this Women of Vision uh, project. I spent Spoke of Maggie Steber just now, and she has just this amazing body of work over time. Um, the one of the most recent things she did was she actually photographed her own mom as she passed away, as she passed into dementia and then passed away. It's an incredibly powerful body of work. Um, but also uh, a woman named Erica Larson, who works with a large format camera and does these kind of haunting uh, portraits and has worked with the Sami in Sweden, a very uh, traditional group of people who do reindeer herding. I don't know. I think I would have to say, yeah, those two. Is it all right if I have two people? No, that's fine. fine. We actually okay. interviewed uh, Maggie recently, so people, oh, if they great. go back uh, a couple of episodes, they'll have an opportunity to hear her talk exactly about that uh, that series on her mom. So thank oh, you for great. that. Oh, great. Absolutely. Yeah, no, she's she's an amazing, 
uh, human being. But I, I am just, I just really advocate for women in this profession because we need, we need diversity in the women in this profession. We need more women and we need diverse group of women. So I just want to, we, we need that other point of view that isn't about violence, you know, that doesn't celebrate violence. And so I guess that's the work that I would love for people to see. Owen, thank you so much for making time for us this morning. We really appreciate uh, you appearing on the show. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks for letting me just sort of blather on. Thanks to Lynn Johnson for taking the time today to appear on The Candid Frame. Find out more about Lynn and her work by visiting lynnjohnsonphoto.com. Remember that you can and do play a big role in introducing others to the work that we do here at The Candid Frame. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution through Patreon. You can contribute amounts of $2, $5, $10 or more, or anything in between on a monthly basis and help make a big difference to the work that we do here at TCF. Visit patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and The Candid Frame website. Thanks to Rachel Hunter-Brown and Wayne Thurnborough for their recent contributions. It's making a big difference. Thank you so much. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. And lastly, I'm working on joining photographer and fellow podcaster Martin Bailey for his Akaido Winter Landscape Photography Adventure at the beginning of January, and I hope to see some of you there. You can find out more about this wonderful experience by visiting martinbaileyphotography.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Our senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.